episode 318 of the Bowery Boys, Moonstruck. That's Amore. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And today we have a special treat um, and a challenge for you, our listeners, as we continue on, you know, with our twice weekly special episodes of the Bowery Boys. Yes. uh, To remind you, during this pause in our normal life, the period when we've all been ordered to stay at home, we have bumped up the production of our show, our schedule, to twice weekly. And it's kind of nice to spend more time together, isn't it? Oh, even if even if none of us are actually together, we're all kind of, you know, at home together. Mm-hmm. And Greg, it does actually still feel, even though we're recording remotely, it feels like, you know, you are sitting right here across from me. I even set up your oh. chair um, right here as if you were actually sitting here. Oh, that old creaky chair? That old creaky <laughs> thing? Yeah. Well, I assume it's empty. Um. Uh, there might be a cat in it right now, but I do. Don't worry, you know I have that little fur, de fur, de cat fur roll. I, I promise. I promise <laughs> I'm going to. Ha- I promise I'll have your chair cleaned by the time you come okay. back. Okay, whatever, whatever that, that is. is. <laughs> yes. Okay, but um, but you were saying that we have a special treat today. Yes, you know you could say that we're all in the mood to share a bit. Sharing, mm-hmm. after all, is caring, and what a. <laughs> What better way to share than with share? Like our ultimate favorite pun of them all, obviously. Um, <laughs> because today we're going to be playing our favorite, uh, one of our favorite episodes of the Bowery Boys Movie Club, which is a it's a bonus podcast that is normally only available to our patrons, uh, those fabulous people who join us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. But today we will be presenting to everybody our movie club episode on the film Moonstruck. Yes. So Moonstruck, the 1987 romantic comedy starring Cher, Nicolas Cage, Olympia Dukakis, and many other favorite character actors. Mm -hmm. Now, as our movie club regulars will know, we only choose movies that were shot or set in New York for discussion. And Moonstruck certainly qualifies. It is basically a love letter to New York. Yes. I mean, for one thing, Loretta, Sheriff's character, uh, and her family live in a gorgeous Gothic Revival townhouse in Brooklyn Heights, still there today at 19 Cranberry Street. And much of the movie is actually set inside this home, in its uh, parlor, in the dining room, and especially some memorable scenes in the kitchen. And other scenes are shot in Manhattan, down in Little Italy, mm-hmm. Chinatown area, Lincoln Center. Of course. And there are and also other spots in Brooklyn, including an iconic Italian bakery that features very importantly into the story. Yeah. And she also, she kicks a can down the streets of Brooklyn Heights, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, these are all places that I am so nostalgic for right now <laughs> at this particular moment in history. And this is one of the main reasons that we chose this movie for right now so that we can all take a virtual tour of the city. Now, you can you can listen to this episode right now, even if you haven't seen this movie in years, or you can watch the film again 
uh, and then listen to our color commentary later. But uh, you'll find that Moonstruck is available on various streaming services. It's on Amazon Prime. You can rent it, buy it. Some of you may even own it. You know, might dust off some of those VHS or beta cassettes. <laughs> so many choices out there. Uh, your Blu-ray DVD collector's edition. Who knows? Um, but you just said, by the way, that today we also have a challenge for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Can you explain this a little, please? Yes, because this listener is a very special episode of the Bowery Boys. In addition to playing this uh, Bowery Boys Movie Club episode, we are also announcing our Bowery Boys Safe at Home Listener Challenge. We want you, our listeners, to get in on an upcoming episode of the Bowery Boys. And how is that? I mean, I know how's how is <laughs> I know exactly how, but I'm just helping you out rhetorically here. Sorry. Thank you, I, and I pr- I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> see, normally I'd get to cue Greg, you know, with my hands and gestures. You can't even see me gesticulating, can you? No, not even. Well, thanks for asking. We want you to call in and record a message. Tell us a story in that message, up to a minute long, and you know, contribute your story to a very special episode of the Bowery Boys. That will air in a couple of weeks. An unprecedented Mm. event in our history here. So what kind of stories are we looking for here? Well, to take it back to Moonstruck for a moment, um, a movie that is a romantic comedy, you know, but it's also about family and it's also about home because half of the movie takes place inside Loretta's home there on Cranberry Street. So it had us asking, what is home in New York? Home is a place that we're all spending a lot of time right now. All of our time, actually. <laughs> exactly. So we're, we're asking our listeners, how do you feel at home in New York? It's especially relevant right now. You know, has your, has your relationship to home in New York changed during the past few weeks? Do you see it any differently? So... This is a bit more conceptual than just merely a share Nicolas Cage melodrama. And obviously, there are many different ways to answer this. You know, home in New York means different things to different people. Now, for the proud native New Yorkers out there, New York was your first home. Even if you moved away at some point. Right. But how does New York feel homey to you? Do you, do you have a story about this? You know, did you like Cher, live with several generations under the same roof? Did you have crazy family meals or maybe just, you know, like amazing meals by yourself, solo meals at your favorite diner on the corner? And of course, many native New Yorkers do move away at some point. And for many of them, New York probably still feels like home. So do you do something, you know, order something from New York and have it shipped across the country to get that same homey feeling? So that's native New Yorkers, like mm-hmm. Cher and, and Moonstruck. Uh, and what about for people who at some point in their lives moved to New York, like namely you and I? You, like millions of us, yeah. Well, for people who moved to New York, when did you first realize that New York started feeling like home? Did it ever start feeling like home? You know, do you still call your old hometown home? Or when you say home now, are you referring to New York? 
So for those of us who have adopted New York as our home, mm-hmm. what is it about this city that manages to make us feel like we are at home? You know, I have to say I was born, I was put on this planet in the city of Springfield, Missouri, in the middle of the Ozarks. And I do go back sometimes, and I do sometimes call it home, but in a very different sense than when I call New York City home. Yeah, so what is it exactly that's so different? Is it the density of the city? Is it the food, the ver- you know, the variety of basically everything? <laughs> I can tell you that when I'm driving back to New York from... Ohio, you know, it takes 120 years to get across Pennsylvania. But then when suddenly I would reemerge onto Delancey Street and there were just people and situations and chaos everywhere around me and crossing in front of my car, I would instantly realize that I had made it back home. And, And this also goes for people, you know, who moved here at some point and then moved away, but they still feel at home in New York. You know, what is that quality makes you still feel at home. And then what about for those people who have never, ever lived here, but just love New York City and and love to visit New York City? Yes, for this third category, when you visit, do you feel at home in New York? Or do you feel like you're, you know, on another planet? And then when you return to your real home, do you actually bring a little bit of New York back with you in some way? And do you dream of making New York your home at some point, and oh, why? True. So there are so many different angles, you know, on home in New York. Obviously, lots of things, lots of other situations we haven't even considered yet. But the point is, we are all really cooped up right now in our homes in New York and elsewhere. But we all love New York, and each in our own way, we feel at home in this crazy city. So what does that mean to you? And what does it mean during this particular moment in our history? So we want your stories, be they funny, crazy, romantic, um, or just advice for other people who are looking to make their spaces kind of homier right now. Okay, so now that we've explained that, Mm -hmm. how can listeners contribute their stories? Well, you can call our Bowery Boys hotline, Greg, and record a message. Operators are standing by. (laughs) Our number is one eight four 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 bowery That's 844-426-9379. Now, messages can be up to one minute long, and we ask you to be sure to leave your first name and the city you're calling from, or the city you call home. And we will be including as many stories as we possibly can in our upcoming show. So that's 844 844- Bowery. Yes, 844-426-9379. So we want your stories, your anecdotes, your tales of people who taught you how to feel at home. Your first apartment, your neighbor who you fell in love with. Or who you called the cops on. And then the cop you fell in love with. Only in New York, kids. We want your stories. <laughs> That's one eight four 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 bowery And if you're timid, you don't want to actually record a message, you can also email us your stories at tom at boweryboyspodcast.com or greg at boweryboyspodcast.com. We can't wait to hear from you. And by the way, for those who support us on Patreon and have already heard the show that we're about to present, never fear, we are recording a brand new Patreon only episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club next week. 
So stay tuned. And we're not going to tell you what that movie is, are we, Greg? Uh, no. Okay. Um, I just, okay. We'll just say that it's another 1980s classic about New York City. All right, we're going to give one one clue, and that clue is this. Sardis. Oh, we even mentioned it in the Sardis episode. Well, if you'd like to hear it next week, join us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And now, without further ado, let's hit the town with Cher in Moonstruck. The Bowery Boys Movie Club presents Nicolas Cage, Olympia Dukakis, and Cher in Moonstruck. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys Movie Club. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. This is our Patreon-only audio special discussing New York City in the movies, discussing the context of New York City history and some of Hollywood's most classic films. It's a little thing we call the Bowery Boys Movie Club. We're glad to have you with us today, and we're really excited to discuss the 1987 film, Moonstruck. Now, let me explain the story of why we chose this movie. We just recently did a two-part show on the history of Brooklyn Heights. Right. Over at that other show we do. Oh, yeah. It's the other one we do. Yeah. To start our research on that, we walked around with our assistant, Julia, walking through the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It was a lovely August afternoon. Yes. And found ourselves in front of a house at Cranberry and Willow, a house that is central to the film Moonstruck. Yeah, I think we even took a photo there. Um, and you said, oh, we have to make sure that we mention this in the episode, that this is the house from Moonstruck. Mm-hmm. And you know what we forgot to mention in the in either of those episodes was the connection to Moonstruck. I guess it would have factored into the second part. Yes. It doesn't really factor into 19th century Brooklyn Heights. But that got us excited to do a film that was centered you know, largely in Brooklyn, although Moonstruck is actually a kind of like Manhattan, Brooklyn co-production in yeah. many different ways, it's, you know? I, and we're going to get to that in a second. I was really kind of confused about like sense of place. Where were we supposed to be? But we'll get there. Yes. We'll get there. Uh, so also, I have been a Brooklyn resident for many years, and this movie is filmed in my neck of the woods, which is this, these areas of Brooklyn Heights, Cobble Hill, and Carroll Gardens. And you might recall, Greg, that my brother lived right around the corner on Columbia Heights for many years, mm-hmm. um, and r- right around the corner from Cranberry. And I almost, well, I tried to buy that apartment when he moved out once upon a different life. I mean, that would have been so different. <laughs> and a different bank account. Yeah, well, we ended up not getting it because we didn't have any money. So that, it was a technicality, but, you know, still we dreamed about buying that apartment. But yeah, I mean, that is, we're both sort of tethered to this share house, mm-hmm. you know? We're going to be spending some time in that house. But can, let's pull back because what you usually do at the beginning of these episodes mm-hmm. is kind of set the stage or set the screen or however you want to yes. tell us about the movie, how it came out, how it did. The film Moonstruck is, as you mentioned, uh, starring Cher, Nicolas Cage, Olympia Dukakis, and a bevy of other fantastic character actors, <laughs> um, is directed by a very underappreciated director, uh, a man named Norman Jewison. He's a Canadian filmmaker who was born in 1926. Mm. Uh, He has had an extraordinary career. Tom, do you know what other films he directed? Tell me. Fiddler on the Roof. Oh. 
the Thomas Crown Affair, in the heat of the night, Jesus Christ Superstar, Rollerball, and several films into the 2000s. So decades of producing hit films. Yes, uh, just a, an accomplished filmmaker here. Uh, the movie Moonstruck, which is, would you describe this as a romantic comedy? Because it was billed as a romantic comedy. Yeah, I, I've, it, of course it's a romantic comedy. How, how could it not be? Well, it's, it's a comedy... Uh-huh. Uh, is it necessarily romantic is something we can discuss because it uses romantic themes in a way that are quite different than, say, a lot of the romantic, the rom-com fair of the 80s. Right. Uh, like is, yeah. like a, a sort of Nora Ephron type thing. Yeah. Right? It doesn't yeah. feel like that. I guess that's more 90s, but still, it doesn't feel like that. Well, it plays on and, in fact, relies upon, I think, people's traditional notions of romantic comedies to, like, really fuel... Both, I think, the emotion and also a lot of the comedy of it. The movie opened on December 16th, 1987, in the heart of a busy holiday season. How did it do? I mean, I love the 80s. It was such a smash hit. It was the fifth highest grossing film of 1987. Before superheroes, before (laughs) the world of Marvel was exploding on stages. Today you would have to have, like, Cher would have to turn into a superheroine. For it to make any money. Now, uh, let me let me. Here's the top five films of 1987. Number five was Moonstruck. Number four, Good Morning Vietnam. Oh, Robin number, Williams. Number three, Beverly Hills Cop Two, the only sequel on this list. Number two, Fatal Attraction. Oh my god. And yeah. the number one grossing, highest grossing film of 1987, Three Men and a Baby. <laughs> the Ted Danson. Um, wait, Bruce Willis? And who's the other guy? Burt Reynolds? Uh, no. Uh, Steve Gutenberg. Oh, Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> By the way, this was a huge year for Cher because she also starred in the 10th biggest film that year. So she was at box office gold. Are you f- talking Witches of Eastwick? The Witches of Eastwick, of course. This film cleaned up critically and also during award season, it was nominated for six Oscars and won three of them. Famously, of course, Cher won the Oscar in a little bit of a surprise. I remember that, watching the Oscars as a kid, and her winning, beating Holly Hunter in Broadcast News, classic role, and also beating Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. By the way, listener, you can't see this, but Greg is not even looking at notes for this. He, <laughs> no. This is like ingrained into his long-term memory. <laughs> yeah, this is... I can't remember where my keys are sometimes, but... But, like, the list of Best Actress nominees in 1987 rattled off the top of my head. Anyway, um, Best Supporting, it went, Olympia Dukakis won for Best Supporting Actress. I should hope so. And Best Original Screenplay went to the Bronx-born playwright, John Patrick Shanley. Now, what's interesting is that he's still a successful playwright. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would later be known for the play Doubt, which would win the Pulitzer Prize, and itself became a movie. This doesn't If you had any doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But isn't it interesting because watching this movie again, it feels so much like a play. I was going to say that to you. Okay, but <laughs> it, absolutely. I mean, you're watching it. it. I got probably halfway through it and I thought this would work so well on a stage so because it, yeah. they don't go anywhere. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's very static, but then it has a three-act structure, like right. a great play. And things kind of keep coming back. You know, there are themes that are repeated throughout. You know what also has themes that are repeated throughout, Greg? What? An opera. Oh, That is of the course. basic yes. 
sort of building block of an opera is themes. Every character has a theme mm-hmm. that they sing uh, so that you know who they are because, you know, you might be way up in the back balcony and you can't really even make out people. But when you hear a theme, mm-hmm. you know who's singing. But interestingly enough that this has never been a musical. Oh, just wait. I mean, I'm sure. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Someone pick this up. <laughs> I mean, this could, I guess there isn't much dancing in this. I had heard that there was a musical version that fizzled in development and that Adina Menzel had even performed the main role, but it's uh, it, it never happened. So we're still waiting for that. I have a feeling, that. yeah, I have a fe- I can just see the whole thing. And the other thing is that this this has so much music in it. You know, and mm-hmm. it has, I mean, it's got cheesy Little Italy music, you know, where it's like, that's amore. It's got Dean Martin <laughs> mm-hmm. all over the place. But you've got Dean Martin and Puccini. Really, it's it. the whole thing is sort of sculpted around La Boheme. So, but again, I'm talking about opera. Keep going. <laughs> um, by the way, uh, before we move on, it was also nominated for Best Picture, but lost to The Last Emperor. Now, oh. this was like, I remember, again, I remember watching the Oscars and thinking that I wanted this to win or maybe Fatal Attraction to win, which, of course, I hadn't seen, but it looked pretty cool because I wasn't, you know, yeah. I was just a teen, but it lost to The Last Emperor. Okay. Had you seen Moonstruck? Yeah. So, so I actually did see Moonstruck and I remember in seeing- In the theater. Uh, yeah. At the, in, in Springfield, Missouri at the Battlefield Mall- uh, Cineplex. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a perfect Cineplex movie, and it was so big that this was not my genre in any way. Like, I didn't really enjoy going to see rom coms, but it kind of transcended that. I mean, it's, it was the fifth highest grossing movie. So, I mean, it, it was. I do remember liking Cher a lot when I was younger, and even Nicolas Cage, because he was kind of an edgy actor at that time. And I had rented some of his VHS films at that time. And mm-hmm. I mean, this was like a kind of next step in his career because he got a lot of attention for this particular role and deserved yeah. attention um i did not see it in the movie theater because i was only i was a young teen mm-hmm. you know and yeah i was not the target audience for this romantic comedy yes. i mean i would i would have been more open to like i was probably going to see like police academy if there oh, happened sure, to be a police sure. academy you know i was into like weird al Music, you know, like this was not, <laughs> this was not where my attentions were. So when did you see this movie? Well, and and then, you know, as I got older and like in high school and things going to get like a video, you know, mm-hmm. to have like some pizza and eat and watch a comedy. Yeah. Moonstruck was like a movie that my parents or aunt and uncle went to see. Well, it, it seems like not... adults. It was an adult yeah. movie. It had a bunch of older people in it. I yeah. mean, I, fr- I, of course, always saw the cover, but I never wanted to see it. Yeah, it, it just sort of eclipsed me, if you will, if we want to stick to the moon. Yeah, so I ended up actually, Greg, never seeing this movie until fin- just this Finally, week. we are here at the Battle the Bowery Boys Movie Club with a situation where one of us saw the movie and the other one hasn't. This is great because I'd like to hear, there's some parts of this movie that are a little creaky. I want to see if that was just something that I experienced or perhaps... You didn't find it as certain parts as cheesy as I did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is probably a movie I've seen uh, three or four times throughout my life. Let's never ju- knowing that you would wind up in that neighborhood. Never realizing. Not really, I guess, when I was younger, even understanding where that neighborhood was. Right. <laughs> so let's do a, ver- let's do like a one-sentence, two-sentence synopsis. 
oh, um, of, uh, of this film? Right, would, you, would you like to t- take a crack at that? So, okay. So Cher plays a woman named Loretta, who is a part-time bookkeeper who lives with her family in Brooklyn Heights and falls, well, it becomes engaged to a man named Johnny, who at the very beginning of the movie has to go back to Sicily to attend to his dying mother. And while he's gone, Cher needs to invite his estranged brother, Ronnie, to the wedding. She does. He's a bad boy. She calls him a wolf. They fall in love. And she fights the desire to be with Ronnie instead of Johnny throughout most of the movie and winds up choosing Ronnie over Johnny. (laughs) And in the meantime, everybody else cheats on each other. (laughs) That's actually pretty good, I would say. What did I miss? No, that's, I mean, that, that gets all of it. More or less in here. And we'll get into those contours a little bit later. Now, let's hit play on, of course, the song that defines this movie. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. Hearts will play tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay, like a guitar and The opening credits roll, and the song that you'll hear... It's almost omnipresent, even though I think it's only played three or four times. Um, although it's, it's, That's enough for me. <laughs> there's a lot of opera, but the song that comes back again and again is Dean Martin's That's Amore. Now, Tom, did you know the song was also nominated for an Academy Award? For this movie? No. Oh, uh, by, back in the 50s? Yes. So this song originally came out in 1953 and was recorded for a Dean Martin Jerry Lewis vehicle named... The Caddy. It was a golf comedy. <laughs> and this song was in that movie and was uh, it lost the Academy Award. But isn't that kind of a, a funny? It was made for another film. That's interesting. I mean, kind of interesting. <laughs> kind of, yeah, maybe not the most interesting fact. It was, of course, a huge hit for Dean Martin. In fact, it became his signature song. So it's the first thing you hear. We're looking over to Brooklyn from the South Street Seaport across the East River. We see the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, and Brooklyn Heights. And then from the other side, we see the Twin Towers. We see the a full moon sort of give way to day. Um, and then we cut to Lincoln Center. There's a Christmas tree, so we know it's around Christmas. And a, a worker is installing a La Boheme poster outside of Lincoln Center. And then all of us, so so we're like, oh, that's interesting. They're like promoting La Boheme as we're still listening yes. to That's Amore. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you did you happen to see the names on the poster? Oh, so I didn't. so it's actually the first inside joke of the movie because the list of talents on the poster are actually of the movie Moonstruck, not of the opera. So for instance, Roger Paradis is listed as the conductor. He's really the unit production manager of Moonstruck. So it's all of these head crew people who are listed as the talents of the of this opera that is going to play a central role in the film. Very it's, cheeky. Yeah, it's very meta. Yeah. Uh, we then are down at Houston and Sullivan. 
Okay, we're looking south. We see the Twin Towers looming large in the background, uh, which did take me back, you know, to pre-9-11 when you mm-hmm. used to walk through Soho and certainly remember like around 6th Avenue looking to your left and seeing, looking south and how you would just see how they dominated the sky there, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, we're looking down uh, Sullivan Street and we see them back there. Cher's walking up towards us and gets passed by a Metropolitan Opera Company scenic shop truck. Again, we're like, what is going on? Here's Cher. She just happens to get passed by this truck for the Met. We don't realize it's a coincidence until later. Right. I thought I thought it would mean something. Yeah. No, but I mean, not yet. Not yet. Yes. That's right. So Cher, Cher is playing a woman named Loretta, and we see her. She's right there in the in the village, and and in fact, she walks up to to her place of business at Nucciaroni Funeral Home at one seventy seven Sullivan. Now, Tom. Did you know to, that funeral home is still open today, but it's at 199 Bleecker Street. Do you know why they moved? Just one month before the film's release, in, so in November of 1987, the building at Sullivan Street collapsed oh. in a terrible accident that destroyed the business. They were doing, it, was a re, it was basically a restoration, poor restoration work and that weakened the foundation of the building and it just collapsed. So the, the business is still there around the corner, but what we see in the movie is the old location. Interesting, of, of yeah. this funeral home. So that was at 177 Sullivan. She goes inside. You you just said her place of business, but she's a freelance bookkeeper. So we see her <laughs> yes. in this opening scene. She's popping into a couple different places, wisecracking, you know, but she's she's like looking over the books. She's trying to get things in order. And she's kind of, you know, giving out some sort of sharpshooter advice. I mean, she's <laughs> just like a straight talker. I think there's one element of Cher's look that we need to uh, mention and that's the fact that she has a lot of grays in her hair mm-hmm. that she's a uh, she's sort of costumed to be kind of tired a little perhaps even haggard a little beleaguered you know she's she, just trying to keep a low profile she's 37 she's a widow mm-hmm. uh, she was married for two years we find we find out that her husband was hit by a bus and died and she has yeah she's she's got this huge share hair uh, but it has some gray in it. She's not completely embittered for a man actually gives her a rose. And there's like a little tiny bit of a light in her eyes. She looks into the, in the mirror at herself. Almost like a reminiscence of like romance has gone by. Yeah. Then, then we cut to the big deal. We cut to the first major scene, which is at the Grand Ticino Italian restaurant with its striped awning on a street that is lined with brick townhouses. Now, we never... Let's talk about place here for a mm-hmm. second because they never say, oh, let's go to Little Italy or let's go to Brooklyn Heights or let's go to Cobble Hill. Well, who knows if anybody was saying Cobble Hill anyway in 1987. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they never are saying where they're going to take you. So I can imagine if you were watching this as a teenager back in Missouri... It was all the same neighborhood. I mean, it was just like a a, blur. Yeah, it was just classic New York looking neighborhood. Right. So when they go into this restaurant and Cher's going into, or Loretta is going in to have a meal with her boyfriend, Johnny, we don't really know. They're in this Italian restaurant with a striped awning. It seems like it's supposed to be in Little Italy. 
right? It looks like Little Italy to me. I know it's actually shot in the West Village because obviously I had to look this up. But you also don't really understand if it's supposed to be close to her house, which is in Brooklyn Heights. So it's a little confusing to me. Well, except for the fact that, did you see the street sign? Oh, the street sign says Hicks. Yes. So we are to believe, in fact, that this is in Brooklyn Heights. And it's a, it's such a subtle clue that would only be for New Yorkers, I would, you know, because they don't really say specifically, I'm in Brooklyn at this time. So it's a little nod to New Yorkers that this is supposed to be in Brooklyn Heights. And we, we don't really realize the placement to her home until later in the movie. It doesn't really matter at this point. It's just a it's just a fun little Italian joint. Today, it's the uh, the there's still a restaurant at that uh, spot, actually. It's in the West Village on West 12th Street, a place called Cafe Clooney. Yes, 284 West 12th. Mm. So if you want to relive many of the scenes, although the interiors are completely not the same, Loretta has arrived here and she's having dinner with her boyfriend, Johnny, who is played by Danny Aiello. And during this dinner, which doesn't seem particularly full of joy and romance, it's during this dinner over the dessert cart that Johnny proposes to Loretta. We're, you know, I'm not sure what we're supposed to make of Johnny. He's just kind of lame. I mean, he's he is presented immediately in a kind of fuddy-duddy way, right? Well, he's, yes. he's, he's not a strong character, you know? <laughs> no, no. He gets but, walked over by everybody. And, and really by design here, because we see... Loretta says yes, but I would say she really acquiesces. That it's really like, hey, you know what? You're not a bad guy. You're not gonna. You're not gonna do me wrong. Right. Uh, she has to kind of walk him through the proposal. He hasn't brought a ring. She wants him on his knee. But all of this is for a very specific reason. It, it's funny because like the dessert cart comes up and he just blurts out, you know, "Will you marry me?" And she looks up at the waiter, Bobo, and says. Boba, take the card away. Are you proposing to me? <laughs> you know, like she's she can't believe that this is a, and she's and she always has this kind of like you know Brooklyn Italian accent too, which yeah. is kind of mm-hmm. fun. So that's her character. He's just kind of like weak. She makes him get on his knees. The whole restaurant comes to a standstill and watches this sort of like lackluster romance unfolding before them. You know. People are, like, chiding him for having forgotten the ring. But the reason that she is kind of putting him through these motions is that she believes that uh, her last marriage, mm-hmm. they they did things wrong, meaning that, like, they went to City Hall, they didn't have a traditional marriage, they didn't go through the different steps of a traditional marriage, and as a result, she believes that because they didn't do that, that he died. So she... It was bad luck. Yes. And so, in this situation, she wants to go through all the very basic, mundane steps of getting getting into an engagement and getting married, because she believes that way, no one's going to lose their life. She then says, Johnny, I, yes, I will marry you, right? And the whole restaurant applauds, and there's saluta, and, every, you know, there's, there's a lot of spumante popping. Oh, you know, yes. Italian mm-hmm. bubbly. Meanwhile, we did jump over something else that happened right before that's a little foreshadowing. Oh, sure. There is a romance going wrong in another part of the restaurant where, you know, a couple gets into a fight, the man says something like, I don't know about you don't have aspirations or something. And she says, well, you can kiss my aspirations and throws a glass of water on him. And this is uh, this professor 
is played by John Mahoney, uh, the dear departed actor who recently passed away, who was, of course, the father of Fraser Crane on the TV show Fraser. Anyway, he'll come back into the story. So after this proposal and the acceptance, they are driving through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Well, it seems now they're they're heading home or are they going to the airport? All we know is that they're going someplace and he's explaining that, oh, by the way, I got to go back to Italy because my mother is dying in Sicily and I need to be there with her. And But when I come back, we can get married. Because Loretta's like, well, okay, I'm going to get married to you, but when? Like, when is this yeah. going to happen? And he doesn't seem to have any of the details in order because he's a mess. And so she says, listen, just go tend to your mother. I'll take care of the details. And when you get back, we're going to get married. And it's kind of stunning because we, then we're literally at the airport. Right. <laughs> the next scene, like he actually leaves at that moment. <laughs> right. So I, it's a little strange. <laughs> Did he already have those valises packed? Who knows? And and also, yeah. did you notice that they could go all the way up? She's waiting and she's watching from the gate. Oh yeah, I mean that was those were the days, weren't they? Yeah, and, and she's so- she's watching. Actually, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing. Because <laughs> what happened? She's 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 seen them board the plane, and there is this like old lady also looking at them, and she's like, I hope that the plane crashes my sister's on the plane and she stole a man from me and then later she told me she just did it to get at me and i hope the plane crashes i put put a a, curse on it i put a curse on it and shares like man i don't really believe in curses and then the old lady said man neither do i (laughs) (laughs) but it's hilarious and it's again foreshadowing it's a soothsayer of sorts. I mean, this, this is setting up a whole thing that's going to happen because the other element here is that Johnny, before taking off, looks at Loretta and says, oh, there's just one more thing. You need to reach out to my estranged brother, Ronnie, who works in a bakery in Brooklyn. You got to make sure that he comes to the wedding because mm-hmm. I need it's got to be good luck. The whole family has to be together. I've been estranged for years. He won't talk to me, hunt him down, call him up, make sure he's at the wedding. So what these very quick scenes and all of that is like just 10 minutes of the movie, really. But what it sets up is this kind of conflict between the traditional, the Italian traditional, and has now seeped in this element of the non-traditional, as we'll we'll see, and how these two conflicts will play out in Loretta's decisions that she makes. So she leaves the airport. This is where it becomes confusing in terms of place. She, she goes back to, to Manhattan, actually. Yeah, she goes to Little Italy to go to a wine shop, the, the Sweetheart's Wine and Liquors, which is um, on Mulberry, just north of Canal. We see her driving a big, chunky, mid-'80s sedan up share uh, behind the wheel of a sedan. <laughs> Damn, yes. And we've actually seen her. We're only 12 minutes into this film at this point. We've seen a lot of share driving sedans mm-hmm. in New York City yeah. at this point. But she goes in to get some spumante so that she can go back and tell her father that they've just gotten married or that they've just become engaged. By the way, I just take a quick note of that of, as she's walking into, the, into that liquor store because the restaurants around her Luna Restaurant and La Bella Ferrera are still there. Like they're like the signage is much different. I mean, we're looking at a little Italy that is not t- touristy. Right at this stage, well, 
not in any sense that it is today. That you don't street, see any like five dollar t shirt shops or like Christmas stores or anything like that, like that that you would today. Then she goes back home. But but wait, there's foreshadowing because when she gets the spumante, we the, won't the, dwell on the, this. The split of mums, you mean? <laughs> oh, it's actually mums. So she gets champagne. Well, but yeah. she goes in there, and and it's an old husband and wife arguing with each other, and the the wife yells at her husband and says, I saw you making eyes at that woman. You're a wolf. That's what you are. You're a wolf. You'll chase after anybody, right? And again, setting up this theme that's going to be going throughout this entire movie. Mm -hmm. Because then the wolf's, the wolf, the man looks at his wife and says, you know what I am? I'm in love with you. And then they're like, oh, and they coo. And then so, and Cher witnesses this whole, I'm sorry, Loretta witnesses this whole thing. She looks at them, she smiles and she thinks, ah, an old couple. Look at what they've got. They've got this. Mm-hmm. They argue with each other. She calls him out. She calls him a wolf. And yet they're still together and they love each other. Our next scene takes us to her home at this house that we've that we've described earlier at 19 Cranberry Street. It's a big townhouse. We it's, should mention. It's a, it's a huge townhouse. And... Uh, Three stories, maybe four. Yeah, stories. yeah. Um, she lives with uh, she lives with her mother Rose, played by Olympia Dukakis, father Cosmo, played by Vincent Gardinia, and then she also lives with their paternal grandfather, uh, who only speaks Italian, and his herd of dogs <laughs> that he has. <laughs> this is Cosmo's father. Yes, she goes in, sees her father. They break open the mums. She tells him that she's getting married. And of course, they end up screaming at each other. Because <laughs> he says, again, you're getting married again. It didn't work last time. Don't get married again, Loretta. It's bad luck. <laughs> Which is not what you want to hear from your dad. No, no. And and then says that he's not going to pay for the wedding. Right. So then she goes so in. He's like a big grump. Then she goes in to Rose, who's 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 laying in bed. When when Loretta comes in and says, Ma, Ma, Rose's first reaction is her first line is, who's dead? <gasps> Nobody. Loretta's getting married. Again? (laughs) (laughs) But then, but then the mother Rose says to her daughter, do you love him? No. Good. When you love him, they drive you crazy. But do you like him? Yeah. So that's kind of like where they stand, mother-daughter. They set up the fact that this wedding is acceptable because it has no passion to it. Okay, so we're about to see a movie. We're, We're about to see all of that derail going forward. Yes. Now, after a very bizarre scene with the grandfather and his dogs walking through Brooklyn Heights in a cemetery, Mm -hmm. which has really no relevance to the rest of the movie. Well, he's gossiping about this development with his friends. Yeah. I mean, his only role in this is to remind you of tradition, of the kind of conservatism that someone like Loretta faces as a woman in the 1980s in New York City. Yeah. And at the same time, he's got like five dogs who he's trying to, you know, wild animals who he's sort of leading around. They're peeing on on flowers on top of a grave. I mean, they are misbehaving. (laughs) Back in the townhouse, Cher's having breakfast with uh, Olympia. Her hair is down, finally, when she receives a phone call from Johnny at the deathbed of his mother in Italy. Which is like darkly, darkly funny, you know, because the mom is just acting. Even the mother who's laying there in Italy, in yes. in Italy is annoyed with, with Johnny. And Loretta, as she's relaying it to her mother, she's like, oh yeah, she's dying, but I can still hear her big mouth. And, mean, and then he said, but don't forget to look up my brother. You got to call my brother. So 
Loretta has this mission. She has to go meet up with Johnny. She calls him actually at the bakery and he hangs up with her. You know, with he screams into the phone, what's wrong can never be made right. And then hangs up on her and her first reaction, she yells back, animal, what an animal. <laughs> the following scene, we, we, we get to one of the other main set pieces here, which is wonderful. We are now in kind of the border of Cobble Hill Carroll Gardens, would be considered today, at Henry and Sackett, at Camareri's Bakery, which was an actual bakery that was there for many, many years. Uh, they moved out actually in the 1990s and then later went bankrupt, went out of business. However, this kind of bakery, this kind of Italian bakery, there are others like this throughout the neighborhood. So if you want to get a sense of yeah. what it would have been like, just go up to Court Street. Well, exactly. I mean, there are a couple that I can think of in, on Court Street where this could have been shot today. Oh, it's absolutely. It's yeah. Right down to the, the <laughs> like family members behind the counter. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it's an amazing thing. Camerary Brothers. This is just a block away from the big ditch, what they call oh, the, yeah. the, the, the BQE, the BQE that yeah. cut up mm-hmm. Hick Street. So she asked to speak to Ronnie. They say he's down in the ovens in the basement. So they go down there. We're finally going to get to see her because all we saw actually when she was on the phone, we saw a very muscular back, you <laughs> know, and you're thinking, muscular back, yes. hmm, okay, I see where this is going. Goes downstairs and we meet Ronnie, who is not happy to see Loretta or us, anybody. <laughs> now, yeah, no, no, Ronnie is like a bad boy. He's got, it's Nicolas Cage with black hair, muscular, he's sweaty, kind of sexy, but also a little deranged. Yeah, <laughs> it looks a little bit unhinged. Looks angry, but definitely, you know, he's got a he's got a certain appeal to him. But he is immediately set off by Loretta's appearance. Um, he has this extraordinary monologue. Now, if I were an actor on Broadway, this would be my audition monologue. Is Nicolas Cage basically saying, "I have no life. My brother took my life away from me." And he starts, you know, like complaining about having to bake bread, bread, bread. Um, I'm stuck shoveling bread into a hot hole in the wall. <laughs> then he then he threatens to kill himself. Chrissy, bring me the big knife. Where's my wedding? I'm going to kill myself in front of all of you. And then he reveals to Loretta that his left hand is actually a, a wooden hand. Yes. And we see that. And, and it's here that we get the roots of the disagreement we find out he has a prosthetic hand uh because his brother had come in at some point years ago ordered some bread and then distracted poor ronnie when he had put it in the slicer ronnie got his hand stuck in the slicer and mangled and it had to be replaced with a wooden prosthetic hand in the meantime ronnie had been engaged and when his fiance found out about the accident she left him for another man. So that is the root of this bad blood between the brothers. <laughs> which you know, which see, isn't nothing. It's a, it isn't nothing. It's, it's a it's a it's a little bit of an indirect anger, <laughs> right? And Loretta's bit. even trying to make sense, saying it's not your brother's fault. And he said he distracted me. I lost my hand. I lost my bride. Johnny has his hand. Johnny has his bride. She said, "Where do you live? Upstairs. Come on, let's go have some whiskey." So then we cut away and we're going, hmm, all right. We actually cut away to, I think, a scene that says the most about 
Brooklyn in this period, okay? Because we are actually at... Uh, did you notice where specifically we're at? Two oh. Pierpont Place. Oh, yeah. Two Pierpont Place. A building we talked about, in, actually, yeah. in the Brooklyn Heights show. This was part of the old Pierpont development, obviously. Uh, next door neighbor to the old Seth Lowe residence. <laughs> yes. And next next door to a playground today. What we see is actually something that I think has played out in many of these brownstones since the 1950s in this neighborhood, which is the idea of the brownstoners or the, I guess, gentrifiers versus the Italian working class in the neighborhood. Because you see Cosmo, we see Loretta's dad, who's a plumber. And now we find out he's a plumber. Yeah, so he's a plumber. He's working on the bathtub for these two people who have, I think, just apparently moved in or have recently moved in who look like they're from the Midwest or the Upper West Side or something. They're nervous. They look like they're they're unaccustomed to dealing with a plumber or really like anybody who actually does, you know, work on homes. And they're kind of looking like it, it felt like the money pit. Which is probably a movie that was coming out at the same time. (laughs) But they're actually asking him to fix the plumbing in the bathroom. And he's looking at it and he he looks at them in the eyes and says, it's going to be $10,800 because he doesn't do junk like the pipes that are there. He only uses copper. Yes. The, the man agrees and will end up paying him. And, and you realize that this is a little bit of his line, Cosmo's mm-hmm. line, because then the next scene, you see him repeat it again in a, in a nice little restaurant. But Cosmo is not with a potential client. And he's not with his wife. He's with his girlfriend. Mona. Mona. Now, Mona, by the way, can I just say for a minute, is played by the actress Anita Gillette. Are you familiar with Miss Gillette? Am I? So she was a Broadway star. Her she made her Broadway uh, debut in Gypsy, believe it or not. Oh, I can see that. I know her because she was a, and maybe you know her from this, as a fixture of the 80s game show. She was, was she a, like in Hollywood Squares? Yeah, she did 70s, 80s. She did all the game shows. She was a regular face on them. More recently, she played Liz Lemon's mother on 30 Rock. Oh, well, I certainly know her. <laughs> so anyway, but she, so he is... Not to be confused with Jack's mother. <laughs> that, yes, yes. Elaine Stritch. Elaine Stritch. Well, another Broadway, yeah. Broadway dame. So we see here that Cosmo is cheating on Rose. So there's like a some trouble in paradise. Right. So then we're back to Ronnie's apartment above the bakery, and they are listening to a recording, an LP of La Boheme. Loretta's cooking Ronnie a steak and serving him espresso. He's sitting there like going, oh, this is, this is good steak. And we see his apartment it is it looks like he has the entire floor right above yeah, it's a nice place it's a, it's airy it's open it i mean it looks like a wallpaper magazine spread <laughs> you know there's a vespa back uh-huh. there there's a stack of magazines that coordinate with the wall color i mean the whole thing is like very well done i don't know if it was supposed to look good or like bohemian well, oh yeah. i guess it's like a bohem yeah like this is sort of his <laughs> attic which is the setting of la boheme Oh, right. Yes. So we're going to go back to this in a second, but there's a quick cutaway, actually, to Cosmo dropping off 
Mona in Brooklyn at the corner of Court Street and Wyckoff. Now, what's interesting is this is just a few blocks away from where Loretta is. And in fact, just a few blocks away from where they live, really. You know, it's um, just a few blocks away from where you live. <laughs> but if you if you'll notice this quick scene, just if you just freeze frame it, that street looks about the same today. It's, uh, it's extremely recognizable if you're uh, if you live in Brooklyn. I also noticed that in the background you see a city bus go by and you also see a UPS truck go by, both of which are chunkier. I would say boxier <laughs> and chunkier than than their current, you know, incarnation. Incarnation, right. yeah. So we go back to the little apartment, Ronnie's apartment. They're now drinking whiskey mm-hmm. and Loretta's attempting to give him a sort of strange pep talk. Of sorts. Well, so what she's done is recycled a line. She's telling him that he's a wolf. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she basically now is repeating the line back that she just heard the night before in the liquor store from the, from the the old lady to her husband. Mm-hmm. She calls him a wolf and says that you know he's like self destructive, but is also guided by his own passions and one that's chewed off his own foot. So that that wooden hand is a embodiment, a of, crutch. Of, yes, that he's something that he's holding back. He counters with his own kind of macabre description of her as a bride without a head. Right, and also says that he she's falling back on the same kind of crutch because you know. Why isn't she married? She's she's made herself into this victim who's cursed by this bad luck. So there's a lot of like heated discussion between them, like And that's where it feels like a play. And performed well because it there's they're heating up and it almost looks like they could, you know, possibly get into a fight. But instead, he tosses the table away, turns it over, <laughs> and then kisses her. Grabs her and they both actually move in to kiss at the same time. I no, mean, they wait a minute, wait a minute, and then kisses him again. <laughs> and then he says, I'm gonna take you to the bed. And she says, I don't care, take me to the bed. And Puccini is blasting in the background. At this moment, I wrote down in my notes here, Greg, how are Ronnie and Johnny brothers? <laughs> I mean, at this point, I just thought, okay, they're very Ron- different. Ronnie here is like hot stuff, okay? Mm -hmm. He's totally passionate. Johnny is off at his mother's bedside, but he's, we didn't really go into it, but I mean, like, he's he's being portrayed as this guy. He forgets his luggage here. He forgets to kiss her goodbye. He doesn't have a ring. He's just a mess. He's he's a he's a perfectly nice man, but he, he's a mama's boy. He's sort of fumbling. Well, I mean, in a sense, they're both men that are struggling in this world and, and have a lot of problems. So. But they don't look anything alike. I mean, there, there is no universe in which those two people are siblings. Well, in this universe of Moonstruck, <laughs> okay, we are to right. believe. So, so that's... That night, there's a dinner at the Brownstone in Brooklyn Heights, and this is this is a, about center in the movie. It's about at the halfway point, and it involves a little bit of, I would say, mythology or a very strange experience that is described by Rose's brother Raymond. So Raymond is is there at dinner with his wife Rita. Rita. So we have Cosmo and Rose, who are Loretta's parents. Loretta, and then Loretta's aunt and uncle here, Raymond and Rita. And Although what is, Loretta's not at dinner. Oh, sorry. Loretta's not there. What does Raymond share? Well, it's an uncomfortable meal because everybody notices that Cosmo is drinking too much, right? Like something is bothering him. He's having an affair. And he also doesn't like the fact that his daughter isn't at the meal. She hasn't shown up. Something odd is going on with her. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like who she's getting married to. He's kind of over... 
his life in a way. But then Raymond, his brother-in-law, brings up, oh my God, did anybody see the full moon? They get into this whole discussion about the full moon and the way that Cosmo, when he was a young man and he was dating Raymond's sister, Rose, came on the night of a full moon and, and waited outside, right? W- waited outside under this full moon and claimed to have dragged it over, you know, to, to like present to <laughs> Rose. I mean, it was all very romantic and everything. And Raymond, the brother-in-law, was annoyed because he, w- he was awakened by the full moon and he blamed it on his brother-in-law. It's all of it's a very poetic little monologue, right? So this the full moon, this at its fullest moon, really is the representation of like a true love of some kind, because then we see that that very evening, in fact, there's a big phony looking moon over New York City. You see it. This over is the, the full moon of the VHS box. <laughs> yes. And you see it over the, the World Trade Center. You see it over the Manhattan skyline. And you see it shining into the window of Ronnie and Loretta. They have spent the entire day together in bed. And now the light of the full moon is shining in on them. They both look up out at the moon. It's very beautiful. Ronnie says it looks like a giant snowball. This gigantic moon also gets Raymond's attention that night. He's in bed. He sees the moon. It excites him, and he and Rita get back to bed and have a little excitement. And the the grandfather, too, is, like, out with his dogs down by Fulton Ferry Landing. He's yelling at the dogs to start howling. He's like, look at this moon. Look at this moon. Howl, howl. So yes. that's also kind of fun. Like, we're doing cutaways to all the characters, many of whom, like, in the case of the grandfather— are right there on the streets of New York, you know, experiencing this full moon. In fact, he is right in front of the River Cafe, which is still there to this day. That actually looked, despite the fact that there's been a lot of changes down to the Fulton Ferry Landing, that actually looked much like it It kind of does today a little bit. Yeah. The next morning, however, Loretta wakes up and lets out an, Oh my God! She runs and hides in Ronnie's closet. And she's like, last night never happened. I'm not going to marry you. What are you going to do? We're going to take this. We're going to take this secret to our coffins, she says. And he says, no, I'm in love with you. And she slaps him. I think one of the most iconic scenes. Yes. One of the most iconic slaps in film history. Because she slaps him in the face. Twice. And then he he just looks at. And so she slaps him even harder again. It's great. Snap out of it. Well, of course, though. Neither one of them can snap out of it. No. Uh, He invites her, in fact, that evening to go to the Metropolitan Opera. Because we find out that the other big passion in his life is the opera, and he's all excited to go see La Boheme by Puccini. So she agrees, Loretta agrees, but of course she's got some, she's got some, both a spiritual and physical makeover that she needs to do. First of all, she needs to stop and confess. Right. So she goes, she goes to the priest and she rattles off a list of things and oh, buried in the middle of those is like, oh, I I slept with the brother of my fiance and, um. And I took the Lord's name in vain and I did that. I did this and I did that. And he said, all right, we'll do a couple of rosaries. But wait, what was that second thing you said? Said. Yeah. So when she leaves the confessional booth, she sees that her mother is there in church, mm-hmm. who reveals to Loretta that she believes that her husband Cosmo is cheating on her. Right. And she gets a little bit upset, Loretta, actually. She doesn't think this is could be possible. 
Yeah, so then she stops by Raymond and Rita's meat market really quickly because she's the accountant. She also delivers money to the bank. So she takes a giant bulging envelope of cash and puts it in her purse. And then she heads off for what is, you know, the quote transformation scene of the film. She's got to get her hair done. She's got to get like tweeze. <laughs> she has to get a new gown. So she's, but to, to foreshadow this here, she is so like, focus and like her she's kind of dizzy mm-hmm. and she is i guess excited nervous she's got a million emotions but this money that she's put into her purse this is of course her uncle and aunts this is their money that needs to be deposited but she will forget to do this right she's absent-minded because she's got to like get a new gown and she's got to get tweezed <laughs> you know we see all of that in while she's in the beauty salons she's saying to people like anybody ever been to the opera like she doesn't know what to expect yeah. there. at the cinderella beauty shop is the name of the place and, and I, where was I, that? I, I don't think it was based on a real the, the name is too obviously a a nod to the transformation for it i think to be a real place but who knows where it is so anyway she comes out with that big very 80s hair but also very beautiful yeah, she, she looks, looks she looks amazing just absolutely stunning um no more gray no more gray. The gray is gone. She goes to buy some beautiful clothes, literally runs into a couple nuns on the street. She then goes back home and she's just kind of like getting ready, feeling, feeling beautiful. There's some jazzy oh, music on the, on I read that. It was like Kenny G. There's like a wailing sax. <laughs> there's, in a, a, <laughs> there's a fireplace. She's arrayed the dress out. She's she, having a drink. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's feeling like, oh, I've never felt this way before. Like, I'm excited. I feel sexy and flirty. And then she takes a checkered cab all the way from Brooklyn Heights to Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. That must have been kind of pricey. But she pulls up. She steps out. Glittering sequin coats. As you see her step out of the cab, first of all, she's wearing this iconic lipstick shade, by the way, because she looks very, the thing is, she looks very sophisticated, like she, like all black with like a sort of like a dark ruby lip. She looks great. Um, and then she, as you walk in, you see actually a big banner that says, meet me at Lincoln Center. That was a huge ad campaign that began to promote Lincoln Center uh, to tourists. Here's the really interesting thing. The film lovingly shoots Lincoln Center. I would say oh. that, like, I mean, it just spends a few moments just sort of admiring how beautiful Lincoln Center is. What's funny is that it has not been, I mean, think about New York City in 1987. You know, it's sort of coming out of a period where the finances were bad, the city was was in sort of poor shape. For many New Yorkers... These are dark days, Yeah, 87. And for, and for many New Yorkers, that's what New York was. I mean, you know... But here was this one spot. It was almost, it's like, it's almost presented like a castle as something that's like an absolutely beautiful place. Yeah. And Um, you notice at the end of the film too, the very last thing after all the credits and everything, it says something like, you know, a very special thank you to Lincoln Center uh, for the performing arts. So they obviously like had some deal you know they they worked on this even on the scenes we're about to see inside lincoln center they do they lavish camera time on like the chandeliers and it looks like the most beautiful place in the world and i would say quite honestly that this movie has contributed to the reputation of lincoln center and helped turn it into a tourist destination so so it's a big deal this particular segment of the film so finally, and also, of course, those beautiful fountains are on, and it's she, she walks towards those fountains looking for Ronnie. Yes, and Ronnie is there. Is he going to be dressed as a baker or whatever? No, he turns on. He's in a tux. He looks 
smashing. Mm-hmm. And you think, okay, these guys are ready for each other. <laughs> he cleans up well. Yes. It's true. Yeah. So they go in. He tries to kiss her. She says, no. He says, she says, no. I said I'd go to the opera with you, but that's all. But she is then awestruck by the glamour of Lincoln Center, and she just can't get over it. When they take their seats to watch La Boheme, I couldn't get over the fact that, you know, the lady behind her seemed to not mind that this, like, (laughs) seven-foot glamazon with this huge ball of hair is going to be sitting right in front of her. I hope that that lady behind her enjoyed just listening to the music because she wasn't going to see anything. It's the 80s. I mean, this is like, this is a situation that thousands had to deal with in the 1980s, in the big hair era. I just love the fact that the interior of Lincoln Center has not changed a single thread. Everything looked exactly the same as you would see it today. I was just at Lincoln Center just four or five months ago for an opera, and I got really excited, by the way. I wanted to see if a version of La Boheme had actually been performed in 1986 when they filmed. You know, and of course it had. I mean, there was... Well, they do it all the time. They do it every year. But yeah. of course, I was like, oh, yeah, on December 15th, 1986, this is, this is the show they supposedly went to. But what is interesting is the version of La Boheme that we see on the stage, because you do see an, a, a couple clips, like, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, a couple snippets. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the version that is still performed to this day. And what did you notice the clips, of course, that they showed us? They were moments from the, the opera that were dominated by a huge moon. So oh, even true, on stage, yes. <laughs> we've got this huge moon. The other thing we need to obviously mention in the audience is also Cosmo with Mona, Mona, his girlfriend. So this is where it becomes kind of like, oh boy, are they going to run into each other? This is going to be like a threes company. Meanwhile, while all that's going on, Rose is back in Brooklyn Heights. She decides to go out to have dinner by herself at the Grand Ticino restaurant. She goes in. She's just eating, minding her own business. She sees that same professor, John Mahoney. She sees him get into a fight with another younger woman who then storms off and he... After throwing a glass of water (laughs) on him. And he basically repeats the same, like, so what we're to get from all of this is this man is trapped in some cycle of his own design. And it's always involving younger women and he doesn't seem to understand his place in the world. She, Rose... Surprisingly. Yes. And then this is a very, like, a really bold, powerful thing for this character to do. Actually ask the man if he would like to join her for dinner. Yeah. And he says, well, yeah, I guess I'd rather not eat alone. So they sit together and they have a marvelous time together. And she also just kind of, like, reads him. You know? <laughs> she Yeah, she really gives him the truth, unvarnished. Which basically sums up to, you keep chasing around younger women. And it's is she talking to him, or is she really in her head talking to her husband? Regardless, it's, it's a very powerful, it's very powerful character development, because she's really stepping out of herself and risking, as we'll see, ris- risking the appearance of impropriety. Meanwhile, back at the opera, um, we do see... The characters all kind of like cross each other, but just miss each other at intermission, of course, in the bathroom and in the line to get drinks. But it is fun to see the drink line. It's fun to see. The Marc Chagall. uh, Ronnie talks about the Marc Chagall on the wall. Loretta observed as they're walking up the steps back up to their seats. She, She looks around and says, 
they get some turnout for this stuff, don't they? <laughs> what I like is that it, it seems for the first part of the opera. Uh, and by the way, this is La Bohème is like a three and a half. Like it's like thirty minutes and then thirty minutes of an intermission, thirty minutes and then thirty minutes of an intermission. Well, you have to funny. be able to get your drink. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't seem like she's into the opera at first. But then we get a shot of her really becoming quite emotional. Yeah, well, and the, and like they to it. they both start to cry. They hold hands. He kisses her hand. So they are deeply now. They're they're going in deep. Now, in the meantime, Mom Rose has left the Grand, the Grand Ticino with her new friend, the Professor. They're walking home. They cross paths with Gramps, mm-hmm. her father-in-law, out walking the dogs. Still underneath a full moon, he looks at them, shakes his head, and keeps walking like I didn't just see that. Right? I didn't see my daughter-in-law holding onto the arm of some other man. Little does he know that his son is off, you know, at the opera. Everybody at this point is is with somebody else. Yeah, so the three main characters are now at least appearing to be improper. Of course, we, only, we know that only two of them really are. And in fact, when Rose goes back to the house on Willow Street, so they're now, they're now out in front of it. She's out in front of it with the professor. They kiss each other on the cheeks, mm-hmm. which is very, very sweet and very romantic. And she goes in. She skips up the stairs. Yes. I mean, she's, she, yeah. she's just had, that is like the best evening because, you know, she feels like she's sort of like still appreciated. Someone looked at her with a, just a bit of romance. Yeah. It's really, it's a cute moment. Meanwhile, the opera is getting out. They're walking down the stairs again. And Cher says of the story of La Boheme, maybe my favorite line, that was so awful, so sad. She was coughing her brains out, and they and she still had to keep singing. <laughs> when she bumps into her father, oh, her father yes. with Mona. So they're both kind of angry, and they're both kind of embarrassed. Yeah. He says, I didn't see you here. She says, I don't know if I saw you here or what. Yeah. So they're confused. Loretta and Ronnie sort of commiserate afterwards at a bar back in the neighborhood. They find themselves at Ronnie's apartment and she struggles again, but eventually goes back upstairs for a second night of lovemaking. That's right. Now, I just want to take a pause real quick. And if we can't, we're almost done with the story here because things are wrapping up. But we're like that moment, for example, is out on the street, right? Uh Uh, On Sackett. Yes. It's shot outside but then we're like any scene that's inside do we think that it was actually shot inside i mean i know that most of the interiors yeah. were actually shot in toronto oh okay well that well i think the for the remainder of the movie here we have probably like one or two more scenes on the streets of new york but yeah the rest even of it even is, in their yeah. house their house mm-hmm. that's on on cranberry i mean we're outside that is on location but when they're inside even you know, it looks like a real kitchen. It looks like a real dining room. I think it's all a set. Well, and I also think it could have been filmed on the stage of the Helen Hayes because, it, again, going forward, this third act has an extreme play-like sensibility. Yeah, because you know it's all going to crash land. Speaking of which... Johnny is back in town. When he Johnny flies, comes marching home again. <laughs> he flies back into JFK. He goes straight to... Loretta's house from the airport. By the way, did you notice that it was $25 for the cab? Well, did you on the side of the checkered cab, it was marked $1.10 for the first one ninth of a mile, and then 10 cents for every additional one ninth of a mile. 
That's what was posted, yet it was $25 to get to Cranberry Street from JFK. Pricey. Very pricey, but he needed to see her. This is late at night. Uh, Of course, Loretta's not there. She's over with Ronnie. But Rose lets him in, and they have a kind of a an interesting confessional the two of them why aren't you with your mother well there's been a miracle there's been a miracle once he told his mother that he was going to get married she perked up she got up and she made dinner for everybody who was there she's (laughs) she's recovered miraculously cosmo comes in and the three of them have this very comic roundabout that essentially happens because they all have a piece of information that they haven't shared with each other So Cosmo knows about Loretta and Ronnie, of course. Mm -hmm. Rose knows about Cosmo, but Cosmo doesn't realize that Rose knows. They all have bits and pieces of information during this this sort of like roundabout of dialogue. Well, and another thing that happened before Cosmo even came home, she did get one important piece of advice out of Johnny. She had said, tell me, why do men chase women? Why do men cheat on women? And and finally frustrated, Johnny says, because they're afraid of death. And she's like, that's it. That's it. So then when when she sees her husband, she actually says to him, Cosmo, I just want you to know you're going to die like everybody else. (laughs) And he's like, thank you, Rose. Good night. And goes up and goes to sleep. So let's get to next morning, really the the, the final the stretch, the final stretch of the movie. Uh, Ronnie actually that that morning has put on some opera again. He's dressed all in black. Loretta has just left him, and we have this wonderful scene of Loretta walking back home. We see the Brooklyn Promenade behind her and the skyline behind her. So we think then that she has walked if she's over at Sackett, Sackett and Henry. How has she gotten home? That did she walked all the way north and then just got onto the promenade? Uh, oh, and, I'm sure she walked. Yeah, she took Henry all the because way. Because she's sort of—I bet she has stars in her eyes. Like she's sort of living with this. In fact, she's listlessly kicking a can down the street. So still in her opera best. Yeah, I think she's sort of in her brain. I think that she has. I think she's walked this entire time. So what's great is she she walks in. She walks by this red Trans Am, which is parked there, and plenty of parking. I was just like, well, that's sharing the Brooklyn of the 21st century. She dances into her kitchen where her mother is making breakfast. Rose, her mom, looks at her and says, what the hell happened to you? You have a love bite on your neck. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially a knock at the door, and it's actually Ronnie. It's uh, They expect it to be Johnny. Instead, it's Ronnie. This is where it's slapstick. Yes. Because the doorbell keeps ringing. <laughs> it's like people constantly come to the door, and they always constantly think that it's Johnny. And what they essentially do is get everybody from the show, everyone in the cast gets back on the stage before the most important character the long-lost, estranged fiancé comes back. So everyone has an entrance with a doorbell. So And it works every time. You think it's going to be him. So so Ronnie arrives, then Grandpa comes down the steps, then Cosmo arrives, then, uh, most interestingly, is Raymond and Rita even come by. And, of course, they're freaking out 
because they believe that Loretta has stolen money from them. But they're so relieved when they realize she was just absent-minded and they she still got the cash. This is one. Of, this is the part of the plot that I think is the worst. I, you could have easily taken it out. <laughs> yeah, because you don't really think that they thought she stole it, but whatever. And she didn't steal it. It was just that she was absent-minded. And well, Anyway, so they're all sitting around the table when Johnny finally comes in. And everybody, by the way, realizes from the family, everyone knows the score. Right, yeah. It's never been stated explicitly that Loretta has cheated on her fiancé, Johnny, with Ronnie. I mean, they just look at him and realize those two are together, they're in love, and we're now going to see the unfolding <laughs> of the revelation to the brother. Yes. Meanwhile, in veiled terms, Cosmo and Rose have also kind of revealed their information. It's not so veiled because, yes, at a very tense moment, finally, Rose speaks up and says to her husband, have I been a good wife? Yeah. Okay. I want you to stop seeing her. He slaps. He hits the table. He's frustrated. Holds on to it and says, okay. Sits back down and she says, and go to confession. <laughs> and so they've just dealt with it in front of everybody in the family. <laughs> So it's kind of great. Every, everyone's know. airing out their laundry. So finally, Johnny comes in. Everyone's sitting around the table waiting for him. And what does Johnny reveal? Johnny looks at Loretta, is confused that her, his brother's there, but looks at Loretta and says, Loretta, I have something to tell you. I can't marry you. What? He says, look, it's been, there's been a miracle. My mother is alive. He's afraid that if they actually get married, that his mom will die. Yes. So he can't get married. She pretends, maybe, to be annoyed by this oh, whole yeah. thing. She is She's definitely, I think she's legitimately annoyed. Because it's a it's little like, confusing. <laughs> but as, as with every great Oscar Wilde play, of course, this ends with a marriage proposal. Because so, she throws her ring back at him. The pinky ring that he gave her at the beginning of the film, but then Rondi then steps up and says, and he asks to marry her. Right, and she says, "Well, do you have a ring?" And he looks at his brother and says, "Hey, let me borrow the ring." So the ultimate irony is then that the brother, the loser, has to give the his pinky ring back to his estranged brother, who then uses it to propose to his former fiance. And so they all end the film drinking some champagne. <laughs> right. And the camera pulls back and rests on a photo of ancestors past, you know, who are in the living room. And it's very <laughs> sweet to, again, the finale of La Boheme. So it's a, it's a beautiful operatic ending. The difference, of course, being that in La Boheme, everybody dies at the end. Or people die. Here, this ends with love. Just a big celebration of of marriage. Yeah. And, of course, in real life, this building was probably sold for millions of dollars, and they probably moved elsewhere. So it gives you a little bit of a flavor of Brooklyn, just a little a peek at what you know, working class life was like in Brooklyn in the 1980s. So, Greg, that's Moonstruck. Thank you for thank you for joining us on this adventure through Cher's Oscar-winning film. We want to thank you all for supporting us on Patreon, and we hope that you've been enjoying these Bowery Boys Movie Club episodes. If you have any movies that you'd like us to talk about in the near future, please uh, leave a note, leave a comment. Just let us know what you'd like to see. 
we wouldn't be able to do the Bowery Boys without your support. So thank you so much uh, for being a part of this, for being a part of the show. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. And we will see you at the movies. 